0: I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Each of us might have a different response to this, a different answer, but I want to get our minds involved with this issue as we start today. The question simply is this. What is it that uh, causes you to obey God? What is it that motivates you to depend upon Him, to serve Him, to seek to be a disciple of Jesus? What is the uh, motivation for your obedience? Now, those of you who are parents in this room have encountered this problem of uh, motivation as it relates to obedience quite often. You uh, tell your kids not to smear jam on mommy's new dress, and the immediate question that comes back is, Why? Why shouldn't I smear jam on mom's new dress? We may reason with them for a while, but eventually we just put our foot down and say, because I said so. And we expect that to be sufficient motivation for obedience. Now, for us as believers, that may be at times the reason for our obedience. We do it because God said so. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. But the issue is a little more complex than that biblically. Uh, If you think about Paul's words in Romans 12, for example... He said, I encourage you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which, he says, is your rational service of worship. In other words, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice to God is a rational move. makes good sense. There are sound reasons to present your bodies living sacrifices to God. Now, in the passage that we are going to look at this morning which is found in the Old Testament, I believe Moses gives us five good reasons, five good rational reasons to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Now, the passage is found in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. So I'd like you to turn there with me. And we will examine these two chapters together. There's a lot of material in these two chapters, and so we will have to treat some of it lightly and just pick out the high points, the main points. But I think we can do that together this morning. The background to this little encounter here is that the Israelites are camped at this point on the east side of the Jordan. They're preparing to go into Palestine and take possession of the land, begin to live there. But they've not yet begun to do that. And they're camped on the other side of the Jordan, still on the Jordanian side of the river. And Moses is giving his final sermons to the people. Now, in chapters 5 through 28 of Deuteronomy, he has applied for them the law that they received at Sinai to their daily lives, kind of giving them an every man's Torah, applied the regulations of the law that God gave at Sinai to the everyday life of the Israelites as they prepare to enter the land. Now, in chapters 29 and 30, he gives us here a little covenant renewal ceremony they are preparing to enter the land, and Moses takes them through a ceremony in which they renew their commitment to this covenant that God has established with them. And I suggest that the reasons Moses gives to these people to renew their commitment to the Old Covenant are good reasons for us, as New Testament believers, to renew our commitment to the new covenant. We, just as they did, live on the basis of a covenant relationship that God has established with us. Now, covenant is kind of a uh, one of those Bible words that gets thrown around a lot. But simply, it means treaty. A covenant is a treaty. Treaties were very common in the this period of time in the ancient Near East, an overlord, a conqueror, would establish a treaty with the people whom he had conquered, his vassals or his subjects, similar to what the Allies did at the end of World War II. We set certain treaty terms for the nations that lost the Second World War. Well, the same thing pertained in the ancient Near East at this time. Now, this becomes significant for a kind of a side issue, which I'll bring your attention to, and it has to do with the dating of the book of Deuteronomy, when this book was written. Those of you that have done some study in Old Testament area, will recognize that uh, liberal scholars try to date the book of deuteronomy in about the fifth or sixth century bc they argue that that's when it was written it wasn't really written by moses which is what the bible indicates but written by some scribe in the temple some eight hundred years later well the interesting thing in this regard is that as we have done more archaeological research in the ancient near east we've unearthed literally hundreds of treaties between suzerains or overlords and their vassals. And the striking thing is that all of them follow the same format. And all of these treaties are dated between 1200 BC and 2000 BC, and they all have a common accepted uh, regular format. Now the striking thing is that the book of Deuteronomy is written in precisely this same format. Moses has couched this relationship between God and man in the forms of the everyday treaty between nations that was common in about fourteen hundred bc so it gives us good reason for arguing as we have all along that moses indeed wrote deuteronomy and he wrote it at about fourteen hundred bc well that's all past history now as i began to think about this passage in relationship to us as a body here the closest parallel i can think of to a covenant renewal ceremony is the sunday morning service here at Cole uh... each sunday morning Uh, Dave or Steve will stand before us and open the scriptures to us and explain to us the terms of the treaty that God has established with us. They will read passage of scripture and lay out for us uh, what God's terms are for relating to him. And each Sunday they expect us to make a commitment, to renew our uh, commitment to obey and to honor and to keep the uh, treaty relationship that God has established with us. So what I would suggest is that this passage gives us five good reasons to pay careful attention on Sunday mornings and to decide in our hearts to obey what we hear taught uh, from the scriptures in these times together. So let's look at this passage together and discover what these reasons are. The first three are found in paragraph verses 2 through 9, and these have to do with actions that God has taken in the past. These three reasons are based on God's work in the Israelites' lives in the past. The first one is found in verses 2 and 3. Verse 1 is a summary verse for chapters 5 through 28, and then Moses moves into the ceremony in verse 2. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, and all his servants and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. So Moses takes them back, reminds them that at one point they were in bondage. They were slaves in the land of Egypt. And that God, on their behalf, did mighty works, intervened in the course of nature to deliver them from that bondage. He reminds them here of the locust plagues, the frogs, the rivers that had been turned into blood, reminds them of the time when God parted the Red Sea for them to take them through and then close the sea on their pursuing enemies, reminds them that God in the past delivered them from bondage. Now, most of us in this room have had a similar experience with God at some point in the past. We, uh, many of us were living lives of frustration. We were in bondage to depression and to discouragement and out of uh, relationship with God entirely. And God, at some point in our past life, reached down and delivered us out of those things, delivered us from the bondage of self and sin that we had been trapped in and brought us into a relationship with himself. Uh, Martin Luther had this kind of experience. Uh, He had labored for years under a great sense of guilt and despondency. And one day he realized that God, in his grace, was the answer for his life that God was the resource for his life and he says when that realization dawned on him he said the gates of paradise opened wide and I walked through with a glad heart well all of us can say the same thing at some point in the past God has uh, opened the gates and delivered us from from bondage to self and that's a reason see to continue to trust him to obey him in the future now the second reason is found in verses 5 and 6 Moses, speaking for God, says, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, but manna instead is the implication, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, but water instead, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. I don't know if you've ever stopped to consider the incredible problem of trying to clothe and feed two and one-half million people in a desert environment not an easy task I have been reading this week the story of the Donner Party which is a party of immigrants that was stranded in the Sierras over a bitter winter back in the uh, in 1846 and 47 and the beginning of that story describes their journey across the great Salt Lake Desert a company of 87 people and they experienced uh, famine, starvation, and trauma as they tried to meet the needs of this small company of people in wilderness situations. Water ran short, clothes began to wear out. Phenomenal problem for a small party of immigrants. Well, here Moses is in charge of two and a half million people. How were their financial and physical needs going to be met? Well, God says, I led you in the wilderness 40 years, and your clothes did not wear out, And your shoes didn't wear out. That sounds uh, probably pretty good to some of you mothers who have just invested in school clothes for the year. But I was thinking, uh, conversely, it may not be that appealing to uh, some of you women to uh, think of the prospect of wearing the same dress and the same pair of shoes to church for... 40 years, or to you men who are faced with the prospect of the same dinner on the table every night for 40 years. But the point that God is making is I faithfully met your physical needs. And see, that's a second reason to renew our commitment to God, is that he has faithfully met our physical needs in the past. I was thinking recently that I'm 30 years old now and I love to eat. It's one of my favorite things. And I like to eat three times a day. And uh, as we all know, food is a basic need of the human life. Well, I got to thinking about it. Three meals a day, I'm 30 years old. That works out to over a thousand meals per year times 30. Is 30,000 times in my life I have hungered for food, and 30,000 times the Lord's met that need. I have not once had to go without shelter, without clothing, or without food. God has taken care of me. And see, that's a basis for renewing my commitment to him in the future. Now, uh, the, I want to point one other thing out to you in verse 6 when Moses says that you've not eaten bread, nor drunk wine, or strong drink. In other words, they existed on manna and water for 40 years. Kind of a no-frills fare. They were traveling tourists here this whole time. And God says, you live that way because I wanted to teach you that I... And the Lord your God, in other words, to teach you that I am the one that meets your basic needs see that's an important lesson that he wants us to learn and this is a reason by the way that he will take us through lean times financially as he wants to teach us to depend on him for everything even for the financial and material needs of life he wants us to learn that he 's the one that meets our needs not uh, Hewlett Packard now <laughs> Now, the third reason he gives us for renewing our commitment is in verses 7 and 8, and this has to do with his uh, giving us victory in battle. He says, when you reach this place, that is, the east side of the Jordan, just on the edge of the promised land, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out to meet us for battle. If you had the name Og, you'd probably feel like fighting people too. But, he says, we defeated them. And we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. So Moses says a third reason to renew your commitment to the covenant is that God has given you victory in battle. Now he's done the same for us. As you look back over your experience in walking with the Lord, you can remember times when he has taken you through periods of great stress and great tension, taken through, through periods of depression, perhaps, or great despondency. He has uh, enabled you to reconcile broken relationships. In other words, he has given you victory in spiritual battle, and this renews our confidence in him. Uh, Gary Merkel is an accountant here in the church. He was sharing with our home Bible study group a month or two ago that uh, two years ago he had submitted a bid for a large contract, and uh, his bid was extremely competitive. The committee that was responsible to make an official recommendation recommended him and when the decision was made, they picked somebody else. And Gary's response was to be uh, bitter. This was, this hurt. And he was angry over the injustice of this. Well, God began to work in his heart. And uh, about a year later, a similar situation arose. Gary submitted a bid for a large contract. Again, it was extremely competitive. Again, he was recommended. And again, somebody else was picked. And the thing that was remarkable to Gary was how different his response was the second time around. See? God had been working in his heart, and in place of the resentment, there came a peace and a calm acceptance of the way in which God had dealt with his circumstance. So I'd given him victory in spiritual battle. So those are three reasons, then, based on God's work in our lives in the past to renew our commitment to the covenant each Sunday morning. He has delivered us from bondage, that is, He's brought us into relationship with Himself. He's faithfully met our financial and physical needs, and He has given us victory in spiritual battle. Now Moses goes on in verses 10 to 13 to address each group in Israel individually. He says, You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God just as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Moses addresses and singles out each individual group represented before him as he looked at the Israelites now if he were here today i think what he'd probably do is he would start by addressing the staff and says all of you who are staff here at Cole community church all of you who in this room who serve as elders those of you who teach in the sunday school department those of you who host or lead home bible studies those of you who are fathers in this room those of you who are mothers in this room those of you who are children in this room, each of you must individually agree to enter into the covenant. In other words, this is not a decision that somebody can make for you. We each individually must assume the responsibility of the covenant. That is, we must must each assume responsibility for our own spiritual lives, as wives were not to depend upon our husbands to sustain our spiritual lives. As husbands, we're not to depend upon our wives to do this. As children, we're not to depend upon our parents to sustain our spiritual lives, and we're not to depend upon the staff here at the church to sustain us spiritually. But each of us must assume responsibility for our own individual lives, individually agree to renew our own commitment to the covenant. Paul says in Galatians 6, 5, that each one must bear his own load. And this means correspondingly, by the way, that we cannot blame others for our spiritual failures. See, we are responsible ourselves. We can't pass the buck and pin the blame on anyone else. Now, Moses moves on in the end of chapter 29 here to give us a fourth reason to obey, to renew our commitment to the covenant. And this one is a negative one, and it has to do with the consequences of the failure to keep the covenant the consequences of disobedience. And they are severe enough, Moses says, that that should be an incentive to obey. In 14 to 21, he stresses the consequences in our own individual lives. And then in verses 22 through 29, he stresses the consequences of our disobedience in the lives of others. He says, Now not with you alone, in verse 14, am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, and with those who are not with us here today well that's a reference to the generations to come those israelites who were to be born after this and moses is saying this covenant is with them too that they themselves and succeeding generations must agree to the terms of the covenant by the way if you uh, it's a good it's a it's a good thing to do to ask yourself why you even bother to associate with uh with the fellowship with the church fellowship why do you it's maybe especially pertinent to uh, those of you who come with your parents. Is the reason you come because your parents insist that you do? Is this just some kind of going through the motions that satisfy some uh, parental uh, uh, urge? Or do you uh, attach yourself to a fellowship because you individually want to be a part of following God's plan? Is it your choice to do so? Well, Moses is saying that each generation must decide for themselves to follow And he says the reason this is true is in verse 18 and forward, lest there shall be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Paul, you will recognize, or the writer of Hebrews quotes this passage in Hebrews 12. Well, this tells you what a a root of bitterness is. A root of bitterness, he says in verse 18, is a heart which is turned away from the Lord. That is a root which growing up will produce bitter fruit, will poison life and begin to make it bitter. And it shall be, he says in verse 19, when he hears the words of this curse, that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. What kind of situation is Moses talking about here? He's talking about an Israelite who ignores the terms of the treaty and doesn't see anything go wrong with his life. He says, I have peace. It's the word shalom, which is the comprehensive word for prosperity and harmony. He says, I have peace even though I'm stubborn. I know that the terms of the treaty say that if I walk in stubbornness, the whole land is going to be wasted. The cultivated land, the watered land, along with the parched areas are all going to be wasted. See, but it's not happening. I'm walking in stubbornness, I'm disobedient, I'm acting selfishly, and nothing's happening. Everything is working out just fine. Okay? So he's the man who is sinning and thinking that he's getting away with it. That's the situation Moses is describing here. Now, uh, this often happens to us. Uh, I was thinking of one specific illustration of a man I knew who several years ago divorced his wife and married his secretary and uh, intended to carry on church life as normal. He was disciplined by the church he was attending and yet found another church that uh, accepted he and his new wife into their fellowship. And he told everyone that he knew, his friends and new church friends, that this uh, new marriage, despite the fact that it had gone against what Scripture teaches on the subject, was the best thing that had ever happened to him, that he had never felt closer to the Lord in, in all of his life. Well, what was he saying? saying, I have peace, things are working out well, even spiritually, between me and God, even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, even though I know I have disobeyed what the Scripture teaches, things are working out. And life is a little bit deceptive in that regard. I think probably if every time we gossiped or slandered or criticized someone or judged someone and uh, our teeth fell out, we'd probably uh, learn not to do that, see? But life isn't structured that way. We often can act uh, with resentment and bitterness and anger and appear to reap no consequences from it. And it begins, us to, to, it begins to deceive us into thinking that we can ignore the Scripture and life will continue to work out uh, for us. Now Moses goes on immediately to arrest the attention of this Israelite who thinks this way, and he says to the Israelite who walks in stubbornness of heart, the Lord, in verse 20, will never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn, literally will smoke against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. The Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. what's he saying? He's saying that obedience is a serious issue, and that eventually the consequences of disobedience will catch up to us, and they will poison life and make it bitter. Now, not only, Moses says, do we reap consequences in our own life, but those around us suffer the effects of our disobedience. And that's what he says in verses 22 through 28. He says, Now the generation to come, this is your sons who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, will say, All this land is brimstone and salt of burning waste, Unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboiim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. And all the nations shall say, why has the Lord done this to the land? Why this great outburst of anger? Then men shall say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them, When he brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day. Now, Moses uses two metaphors here to describe the effect of the Israelites' disobedience on the nation. The first one is that uh, that the land is a burning waste. He pictures an Israelite and a foreigner standing in the middle of Palestine, and everywhere they look, they just see barren and empty and lifeless fields. No vegetation, no trees, no moisture, limestone, sulfur, salt scattered all over the place. A barren waste a burning waste and Moses says that's what you can make out of your land if you forsake the covenant and the other the other metaphor he uses is that of a tree that's been uprooted and he pictures God as seizing Israel like a tree and yanking it out of the ground by the roots and leaning back and hurling it into a distant land he says that is the consequence see, of forsaking the covenant now it's very severe. He says, I want you to pay attention. Disobedience is costly. And that's why I'm stressing this to you. And we need to remember that, that individually, say, we can make our environment at home a burning waste by acting selfishly and in disobedience. We can leave that heritage for our children. Leave a burning waste as a heritage for our children. We can do this as a church body that we can leave as a heritage behind us, a burning waste, if we do not as a body Obey the teaching of Scripture. Uh, the Scriptures, for example, teach that we are to esteem uh, the leaders of our church highly in love. So, those of us, uh, those of you who are elders in this body, deserve, Paul says, to be treated with respect. So, our responsibility as members is to treat them highly with respect. Doesn't mean we have to agree with everything they decide, but we always give them the benefit of the doubt. We are supportive. We're never critical of them to our children or to other people, but we are supportive. And the consequence, if we don't, see, if we don't do that, if we instead are critical and judgmental, we are beginning, see, to sow the seeds which will turn the life of our church into a barren waste. Uh, If if some issue of church discipline arises, uh, we need to be willing to have the courage to carry it out. We're instructed to do so by the scripture. When there is persistent and unrepentant sin, the Lord commands us to exercise church discipline. Well, it takes courage, see. You run some risks when you do that, of being misunderstood, of being attacked. Well, are we, do we have the courage to do so, to be obedient, despite the cost? Well, if we're not, see, we run the risk of turning our church life into a barren waste, taking the life and the starch and making it sterile and lifeless. Now, a question arises at this point. I'm sure you're asking as you read. This sounds very harsh. And almost cruel of the Lord to rest every curse in the book upon the man who was stubborn and to uproot the nation and fling them into a distant land and the question arises uh, why is God so harsh in his language is he some kind of mean ogre or tyrant who is out to squash us at every opportunity well I got some help interestingly enough on this issue when I was mowing my lawn yesterday those of you that uh, have this delightful weekly chore know that uh, if you use a mower with a bagger, you have a discharge chute on this uh, mower to which the bag is attached. Well, every time I reach down to uh, empty that bag of the cuttings, my eye is caught by this large warning right over the discharge suit, chute. And the warning says something to the effect, do not, under any circumstances, stick your hand into the discharge chute while the mower is running. Now, the response could be, well, those guys are just really kind of mean, you know. They're out to, you know, deprive me of my fun and curtail my freedom and (laughs) my uh, spontaneity to do what I feel like doing whenever I want to. But see, that warning is stern and it is in bold face for my protection. I'm running a great risk if I ignore the warning. And that's why I believe God spends so much time in the book of Deuteronomy stressing the consequences of disobedience. He wants us to know what we're getting into. He doesn't want us to take it to be taken by surprise when life begins to go sour when we've ignored the truth. So he wants us to know that that's what's going to happen right from the start, so we know what the score is. Now, there's one more reason, which fortunately is a little more positive than this one. Uh, Moses, as any good preacher does, doesn't want to leave his people on a downer. So he provides a way out. He says, if you happen to be in this distant land, uh, your environment is a burning waste, life is sterile and lifeless, and you come to your senses, there is a way back. And that's what he describes in the first paragraph in chapter 30. It shall become, when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind, that is, you remember what the Scriptures teach, in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, And you return to the Lord your God, that is, you repent of your disobedience and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. And down in verse 9 he says, Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Well, this is the second uh, reason which relates to God's work in the future. The first one was that disobedience will produce a life of barrenness and sterility. And this is a positive reason that obedience will produce a life of richness and ripeness will produce life and prosperity. God is pictured here as a God who is compassionate, who delights to restore, to rebuild, to renew. And all he asks is a heart That is responsive. All he asks is that we return to him. That's always the way back when there's an individual sin or a a lifestyle of sin for a period. That's always the way back to remember what the scriptures teach, to repent and return to God. And then he delights to restore and to rebuild a life which has been broken. Now in verses 11 to 14, Moses makes the point that this obedience which he is asking of the people is possible for them. He says, this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, that it is, it is not beyond your power to do. It's not out of reach for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven, that is, it's not somewhere inaccessible, that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea, across some kind of impenetrable barrier, that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it but the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it the point here simply is that the kind of obedience that god asks of us in terms of the treaty is possible for us now at times it may seem to us that it's extremely difficult the the tension and the pressure the emotional pull may be very heavy upon us to disobey and to go our own way but the point that the scripture makes clear is that it is possible obey, but not by our own strength, not by our own resource. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the uh, difficulty of having a battery go dead in your car. If you've got a manual uh, a clutch, manual transmission, you can jump start the thing, but it takes a couple of people huffing and puffing to push that thing on a level street to get up enough speed to get that engine started. And how much more delightful it is to get in the front seat and turn that key over and feel that engine roar to life, see? There's a source of power and energy in there which is designed to make that machine go, see? And that's what God has given us, see? Apart from His life and resource, we're like people trying to push their car to work, see? A lot of effort, a lot of strain, little result. But there's a power plant, see? The life of the Lord is within us, see? And that's the power plant which enables us to obey what He's asked us to do. He'll empower us to do anything He's asked us to do. Well, we're given five good reasons then. God has delivered us from bondage. He has met our physical needs faithfully. He has given us victory in spiritual battle. He's warned us that disobedience produces barrenness in life. And He's promised us that obedience produces life and prosperity. So Moses' concluding words in verses 15 and forward is that the choice is ours. See he says in verse 15 I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity and that I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it verse 19 I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death the blessing and the curse so choose life in order that you may live. Well, what does Moses say? He says, I've set before you two alternatives, two ways of handling life. One is to depend and trust upon me entirely, to obey what I say. That road issues in life and prosperity. Or you can choose to live a life of self-dependence and self-will, and that road issues in death and adversity. Moses says the choice is yours. See, God will not coerce us in this matter. He loves us enough to give us the freedom to do our own thing if that's what we choose to do. He won't force our hand. He leaves the choice up to us. And that's the choice that faces each one of us today. Are we going to, on the basis of the reasons that Moses has given us, renew our commitment to depend upon the Lord daily, to obey Him, to seek to be righteous people? Or will we choose to live a life of self-dependence? And self-will. Well, the choice is ours. Now as you've observed by reading carefully these last two chapters, the word heart is key to this. It occurs eleven times in these two chapters, and that's where everything starts. See? If our heart is stubborn and resistant, then God will let us go our way. But if our heart is soft and yielding, He'll provide all the resource and grace we need to make life rich and full. If our heart is yielding and soft to Him, This is the way life will look in verse 20. He says, this is what it means to live, to love the Lord your God. That's where it always starts, not with obedience, but with loving the Lord, choosing to follow Him. Then by obeying His voice, and lastly by holding fast to Him. For Moses says, this is your life. See, this is where life is, in loving the Lord, obeying Him, and holding fast to Him. Cleaving to Him. Clinging to Him as our resource and our strength for life. Okay. Well, that's the choice that's before us today. Life and death, prosperity and adversity, the choice is up to us. Let's all stand together and we'll close in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we've each uh, taken our stand before you today and must answer the question in the quietness of our own hearts uh, whether we will choose to serve you as Lord, to obey you and to follow you or not. I pray that as each of us consider this issue that you will circumcise our hearts as you promised this people to do. She'll change us from the inside, make our hearts responsive and yielding and open to you. Give us a renewed commitment this week to be your people, to obey you, to follow you, to depend upon you, to uh, become Christ-like in our attitudes and our words and our behavior. We look to you for the grace to do this, and we thank you that you care so much for us to uh, give us good, sound reasons to follow you and to revolve life around you. Thank you for your grace and your availability to us. In Christ's name, amen.